order. We are continuing our study in the 1689 London Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we are on chapter 24, so we are nearing the end, but we are going to spend a few weeks, possibly, talking about the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate is the government, or the state, and as you can imagine, in our day and age, this is a very difficult subject. Um, lots of current uh, anxieties, lots of current uh, debates and controversies over how does the Christian relate to the state and relate to the government. Uh, I know for me personally, I grew up in a very politically engaged and active family. Um, I've been guilty of the idolatry of government, of looking to government and looking to governmental leaders as, hey, they're going to solve my problems. If we get this person in office, our country will be fine. Um, and so I've been guilty of those kind of feelings and you know, putting too much stock into our government. And I think also just the United States of America, I mean, I'm pretty biased. I think it's a great country, um, but it's a very unique country to be a Christian, right? Because we do have a lot of autonomy and we do have active participation that you don't have in many other countries on the global sphere. So, very interesting topic. Um, so before we really dive into the confession though, I want to kind of talk about some of the spiritual virtues um, or the spiritual foundations that we should have before approaching this topic. Because it's so easy to just dive right into specifics and say, okay, you know, can the government tell me to do this? Or should I obey the government in this regard? But so many of these subjects involve our liberty of conscience and involve uh, asking for wisdom and relying on prayer. And so I want to begin by talking about a couple of the spiritual foundations that I think are important as we begin our study on the civil magistrate. So the first is the continual acknowledgement of God's power. Go ahead and turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. This is a really important passage a really striking passage involving the power of God. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Actually, does someone, do I have a volunteer who would like to read verses 1 through 6? Sam, he's on it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Thank you, Sam. I love this passage, right? Because not only does it show the power of God, but it also shows the way that he looks at kings, right? He's given kings authority. But when kings desire to put themselves over God or to act like God, he literally laughs at them. He holds them in derision. He mocks them, right? How can you, I have given you the authority to be king, and then you think you can set yourself as king over me, right? Um, so we see the power of God. We also see the kingship of Christ, right? As for me, I have set my king, we believe that's referring to Christ, as on Zion, my holy hill. And so we're going to also see 
the importance of Christ's kingship in regards to how we relate to the civil magistrate. So that's our first one. I've got 10 for you. Um, a reliance on prayer for delivery. Psalms 34, 17 says, When the righteous cry out, the Lord hears them and delivers them. So specifically, when you are under government oppression, when they are treating you unjustly, right? Our first thing should not be, okay, how can I get power back and how can I exact vengeance? No, our first inclination should be to go to prayer to God to ask for deliverance. Again, he's the one who has the power to actually deliver you. Uh, a reliance on the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discretion. James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God and it will be given to him. And again, I've already referred to this, but as we tackle some of the difficult specifics of submission to governmental authorities and our relationship to them, it's important that we continually ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. And God has promised that he will give wisdom to those who ask. So a step that we should not forget. We also think of how there's this call from Christ and from the apostles to imitate Christ in his sufferings. So there's the, I mean, this gets into a lot of the debate on how the role of the church is going to be, you know, to the end of time. Are we going to be a church that in some respect takes over the world, takes over the nations, becomes king, or are we, or, or are we going to be a church that is constantly persecuted and constantly suffers? Um, I think scripture is clear that the Christian life is going to be one of suffering, one of patient suffering, and in that way we imitate Christ. And in our study on 1 Peter that we just finished on Wednesday, that was kind of one of the big themes. Uh, faith in Christ's kingship. So we saw that in Psalm chapter 2, but we also see that in Isaiah 9-7. Christ, when he comes to reign in his second coming, he, the increase of his government uh, will have no end, and the, the peace will have no end. Right? So we look forward to that second coming of Christ for this very reason, that he is going to bring peace, and he's going to bring order to government. Uh, faith in Christ's spiritual kingdom. John 18, Jesus responding to Pilate says that his kingdom is not of this world. And it's a very interesting passage because he says, if my kingdom was of this world, we would be fighting. My disciples would be fighting, right? Uh, but they're not fighting. Why is that? Because my kingdom is not of this world, right? Our job, their job was not to like the Jews wanted them to do, to take over the Roman government and to free Israel and to create a theocracy again. No, the role was to establish a spiritual kingdom that we see today in the church. Um, a high view of church, I think, is very important as we think about our relationship to the civil magistrate. Matthew 18 talks about how the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. On this rock, I will establish my church. And so we think... Governments all over the globe, I'm thinking, you know, even specifically China, right, are trying to get rid of the church. Or they're trying to take the church and say, you got to teach exactly what I think you're going to teach. Um, or what I think is best for you to teach. You can even see they'll, they'll put in like puppet, uh, puppet bishops and uh, puppet, uh, you know, uh, preachers and such in their state churches. So... But if we have a high view of church, we will understand that Christ is going to 
keep his church and he's going to strengthen his church even when the government, even when the civil magistrate is against them. There's going to be, or it's important to have a love of neighbor, right? Matthew 22, 39, Jesus says that the second commandment is to love our neighbor. And we'll see this also in Matthew chapter 5. Not only to love our neighbor, that involves meaning loving our enemy, to even pray for our persecutors. That's not easy to do. Like I told you at the beginning, you know, I struggled. I grew up in a very politically engaged family, and it's very easy to, uh, for your anxiety to rise depending on the governmental situations in the country. And so to remind ourselves of the importance of praying for our enemy and praying for those who persecute us is startling, right? That's a kingdom mindset. And I think of it's very hard to hate someone that you pray for. And I think that's why God commands us to always be praying for our leaders. And that's why we do it in church. It's just, it's hard to hate people that we pray for constantly, right? So we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for their repentance, pray for their salvation, and pray that they would rule justly. I think we got one more. Yes, the last one. In scripture, there is a command that uh, Christians should desire to live a quiet and peaceable life, right? We shouldn't be uh, known by our desire for rebellion, right? The Jews were constantly known for their desire to rebel against the Roman Empire. In fact, Barabbas was under trial for murder during an insurrection, right? And of course, they chose to free Barabbas and not Jesus. And so the Jews were very pro-rebellion in some respects, right? They, they desired to overthrow the Roman Empire. But we see that Jesus and the apostles and the teaching of, of Scripture is that we should desire to live quiet and peaceable life. When possible. It's not always possible. But that should be our desire, is to live peaceably with our neighbors. So those are ten that I came up with. I think there's, there's other ones, of course. But those are some of the spiritual foundations that I think are important as we continue to talk through some of the difficult uh, subject matter of submission to the civil magistrate. And why is that, right? I'm going to put up a list of a lot of the issues surrounding this chapter, right? Go through the list. Pacifism, politics. We talked about it last week. Oaths and duties towards government. Uh, socialism, theonomy, various millennial views. Christian nationalism. Uh, submission to the president or our constitution. Uh, the unique form of our American founding, right? Is America a Christian nation? What, what is the, the evidence of that? Um, just war, capital punishment, much, much more. That list could go on and on, right? All these issues intersect in this chapter on the civil magistrate. And I think that the Baptists had a really, really unique view of this, and I think a really positive view of the civil magistrate that's a little bit different from the Presbyterian, from the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Confession. So we're going to get into that next. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, what, what are the differences that it has with the Westminster and the Savoy? Before we get to that, any questions or comments? Yes, Josh. Absolutely. So Josh is saying, you know, we desire to live 
quiet and peaceably, and, and even there's a call to suffering in Scripture, but aren't there times where we will have to fight? Absolutely. And we will talk about those. I think chapter, or paragraph 2 of the Confession will talk about different exceptions throughout Scripture, different exceptions when we as Christians will be called to fight, right? Uh, the Baptist Confession does have an understanding that there is just war, that there are times when we have to defend ourselves and fight. Um, but we will we'll get to that a little bit later. We will flesh that out, absolutely. Good question. So, the initial Westminster Confession, ratified in England, says this. The civil magistrate hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace may be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. So, this paragraph is not in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, right? This paragraph actually is not in the American version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but this is where the Westminster divine started, right? They lived in a time where the parliament was in many respects sort of the general assembly, right? The parliament of England was the general assembly of the Presbyterian church. So there was a lot of overlap, right, between the government and the state. And so they did not see this as being problematic to say, well, it is parliament's job or it is the state's job to suppress blasphemies and heresies. Um, it was also the state's job to call synods or to call assemblies of the church to determine what were heresies. Um, this is a different view, obviously, than what the Reformed Baptists had. Again, like I said, the American Revisions in 1788 completely rewrote this paragraph to say, essentially, that there's freedom for all denominations. So they got rid of the fact that we're supposed to suppress heresies. They got rid of the fact that you can call, that the state can call synods. And so the American revisions of the Westminster are a lot more in common with the London Baptist Confession of Faith. But there are many Presbyterian churches that still hold to the original Westminster, obviously. And then the Savoy Confession, so this is for the Congregational Presbyterians, they removed the synod comments, but they kept reworded comments on blasphemy and error. So they still held that, hey, the state is, does need to have some role in suppressing and punishing blasphemy and errors and heresies in the church. So in, by distinction, the London Baptist Confession of Faith obviously does not have that paragraph. Sam Waldron says, the Reformed Baptists did not receive religious freedom until 1688, the year of the glorious revolution in Great Britain. The reason for this is that the kind of view of church and state enshrined in the original version of the Westminster Confession was until then accepted and enforced by civil law. 
I think we must beware of what is deeply implied in the notion that the civil government is to enforce the first table of the law. Historically, Baptists have been opposed to such a notion. So there's a lot here, right? And I think we, we will talk a little bit more about that distinction of the two tables of the law. The first table of the law is the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments. And then the civil part or the second table of the law is those last six, right? The idea that the Baptists had obviously was informed because they suffered persecution at the hands of the Presbyterians. If you read Reformed Baptist history, they were considered heretics a lot of times. Uh, They were considered to be in grievous error for not practicing paedo-baptism. And they were persecuted for that. And so obviously, (laughs) the Reformed Baptists would be against the Presbyterian view of the civil magistrate, suppressing heresy. And they didn't just not like that because they didn't like persecution and suffering, right? Uh, They grounded that in the understanding that the civil magistrate is not to enforce the first table of the law, right? So they're not supposed to enforce in a civil matter or in a judicial matter loving God over all other gods or not having, making any other gods before him, or not making graven images, or honoring the Sabbath, right? All of those things were not necessarily in the purview of the civil government and the magistrate. As opposed to the second table of law, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Those were civil matters. Those were in the purview of the civil government. So this is where they grounded their understanding of the role of the civil magistrate. Tom Hicks says, uh, a current Baptist pastor has written on this issue. He says, the Puritan era first table laws against blasphemy, idolatry, and even Sunday laws fell into disfavor, not merely because of secular trends, but because of the Protestant conception, these obligations pertain not to the state, but to God alone. So obviously there's disagreement, even, might I say, among Reformed Baptists, and certainly Presbyterians, on whether or not we should enforce the first table of the law, whether or not the state should enforce the first table of the law. And wherever you land on that, I think it's important to look at the Reformed Baptist history and say, well, hey, the Reformed Baptists clearly, historically, did not hold to that. Right? There were, obviously, Presbyterians and Puritans that did hold that we should, the state should enforce the first table. But Reformed Baptists certainly did not, and it would be very problematic if they did. Right? It also didn't really compute with the congregational view uh, of church government, that the government should be, of the church should be restricted to the local congregation. Any questions in that regard? I'm anticipating some questions. Sam? Um, are you aware of, like, any, I guess, since Still worth it to like release the enforcement of the first uh, table 
So you're asking, is, is the Protestant understanding of the first and second table law responsible for some of the secularism? Is that like, could, could moving away from, moving away from um, the, the states enforcing constant church laws cause secular trends in culture? And even if that's the case, is it still worth it to remove and separate church and state because of Good question. Okay, I'm understanding now. So, so Sam is asking, hey, is that separation of the state enforcing the first table law, is that, you know, kind of lead to some secularism? That's a huge debate. Um, I think yes, absolutely. There's bound to be some obvious secularizing if you say, well, the government isn't in charge of enforcing idolatry or something, or enforcing the, the worship of the true God. Um, but on the flip side, you know, many times the Protestant Reformation is blamed for our secular individualistic kind of age. And I think that that goes too far. I think obviously there were plenty of other historical trends. The Industrial Revolution, um, you had the Enlightenment philosophers. Um, many other different trends lead to that individualistic and kind of secular um, understanding of culture. But it is tough. I mean, it, I, th I think that's where just history gets really complicated, is thinking, well, is, is it the Protestant Reformation? Is it their fault? Um, I think that's way too simplistic. Yeah, so that's a great question. Yes, Karen. Yeah, so Karen's asking, you know, our laws, at, and I think that still is the law, right? That you can't sell liquor on Sundays in Georgia, I want to say. There, there's many places, even in the U.S., that some of these Sunday restrictions on laws happen. And so Karen's asking, well, is that enforcing the first table? I do think it is. I do think it is enforcing the first table. Um, again, you can talk about the, you can have disagreements on the merit of that, um, but I think you obviously are grounding that in the fourth commandment. So, so I think. Did your London Baptist use the against saying that the magistrate shouldn't disallow? I think so. Yeah, I think that would be safe to say if you were, if the Reformed Baptists were clearly against enforcing the first table, that would include restrictions on activities on Sunday and such. Again, not for Christians within the church. So we'll get at that, that obviously they would enforce the first table law within the church in that body, but this is for believers outside of the church. Yes. these things, but we don't care about the 
example, if, if, if the state ends up being more or less secular, what, what reason do they have to reverse the second table if they don't believe the first table and we don't care about the first table? And why would we be concerned if the state is a secular, like if they're Christian, that they have an eye to the first table as they first That's a great question. So Hans, you're getting to the root of the issue and the root of the debate. Um, Hans question is essentially if the second table of the law, let's say do not murder, rests in the first table of the law, right? The if if men and women are not made in the image of God, right, then they why not murder? Right? And so it's it's obviously based and foundationalized in the fact that God has created us with unique uh, rights and unique value for him. So the question is, you know, do how can the state enforce the second table and not the first table. I think we will look to scripture. I mean, we'll just go ahead. We'll get to Romans 13. So go ahead and open to Romans 13. Within scripture, we have this distinction between the first and the second table. So this isn't just necessarily a theoretical exercise, although I think that when you are crafting legislation and crafting laws, obviously there is wisdom and uh, involved in doing that in the specifics. But Romans 13, and we'll go ahead and read the whole thing because we're about to get into this. Verses 1 through 10, follow along with me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a tear to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities of the ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not murder, sorry, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So Paul, we're talking about the first table and second table of the law, right? Paul connects, he's using that second greatest commandment that Jesus refers to, right? Jesus says all the law can be summed up in these two commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And so that's where we start to get that first and second table. But then Paul doubles down on that. Because in regards to the secular authorities, he says, he doesn't mention anything about the first table of the law. Right? Bearing the sword in order to enforce the first table of the law. He mentions the second table of the law here. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not murder. 
So that's where we sort of start to get a division from Scripture, but also our division for saying, here is what the civil magistrate's role is. Their role is not to enforce the first table. Their role is to enforce the second table of the law. Again, there is debate on that, right? I think the Reformed Baptists take a clear position, and our confession, confession takes a clear uh, position that they're only to enforce the second table of the law. But there are Christians on both sides who do agree that, who do say that the state should enforce the first table of the law. Now we're going to get to the foundation to, to how Paul can say this, right? Paul doesn't just come out of the blue. This isn't um, teaching on government authority that we've you know, read through most of Scripture and all of a sudden we're like, oh, here it is. Here's why we need to submit to government. He's basing this off the Old Testament. He's basing this off the ordaining of the civil magistrate in the Old Testament by God. I'm going to skip that quote real quick. So we're going to get right to the confession, which says, God, the supreme Lord and the king of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them that do good and the punishment of evildoers. So, the confession uses Romans 13 as that proof text, right? But again, we're going to go back, farther back behind Romans 13, to understand how God can ordain the state. Yes, Dick. Yeah, so Dick's asking, you know, this is why this conversation is so important and in, in a lot of ways so heated is, is when do we resist government, right? Um, I think what's important is we, we understand when Romans 13 was written. Romans 13 was written during the Roman Empire, right? And the Roman Empire was probably worse than the American government, right? I would say. Um, they... We're, we're going to read, and Kem is uh, going to preach on the passage where Herod beheads John the Baptist. Um, and Herod was also known for, obviously, trying to kill Jesus. And so he went in and killed all the Jewish babies under the age of two. Right? So these massive atrocities that the Roman government was enforcing and the power that they had. And yet, Paul still says... That state, those governing authorities are still ordained by God. So whether or not the state is righteous or unrighteous, we still have an obligation to look to them as being ordained by God. Doesn't mean we always obey and we'll get to exceptions, right? But our first inclination should be to submit, even when government is unrighteous. In fact, they always will. I mean, I don't think we'll have a fully righteous government until Jesus comes back. Yes, Chandler. Good point. Historically, 
situations where you wouldn't obey your father. Right? If your father says, you know, hey, join me, we're going to, if your father's in a gang or something and says, hey, we're going to go shoot up this person's house, just because your father said so doesn't mean you should obey. Right? So they're, they're, but the general idea is that, unless you're getting specifics, but that you should submit to your fatherly authority. So absolutely, that's a great comment, Chandler. Um, moving quickly... Let's talk about the ordaining of the civil magistrate, right? We'll get into some of the specifics about, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the role and the job of the civil magistrate. And in that discussion, there will be specifics for when we can resist. Because I think the scripture authorizes many different situations where we can and should resist the government. But before we do that, we, I want to talk about the ordaining of the civil magistrate. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Going way, way back. So Genesis chapter 4 is the narrative of Cain and Abel. So I'll just, quick summation, Cain and Abel are both called to bring uh, the first fruits or the sacrifices to the Lord their God. And Cain does not do that, right? He doesn't bring the best of his crop um, like Abel does. Or Abel brings the best of his, the best lamb that he has. And Cain doesn't do that, right? So God considers that an affront and basically says, hey, Abel did what is right. Cain, what are you doing? Cain does not like that very much, right? There's not too many people on the earth at this point. And so obviously... Uh, Cain thinks that's favoritism by God. And so Cain, here it says in, well, we'll start in verse, verse number eight. Follow along with me. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and your face I sh from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So right here, obviously we have already had the first sin. They've been expelled from the garden, Adam and Eve. But here we have the first murder. Murder. (laughs) Uh, We have the first murder in Scripture. Um, Cain kills Abel. And what we have here, the, the defining verse is that vengeance shall be taken upon the Lord and not upon man, right? Vengeance is the Lord's business. So if we flip back to Romans 12, right before Romans 13, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, in verse 19. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So here's that basis for what Paul says. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That basis is all the way back in Genesis 4. Right? So as we think about the civil magistrate being ordained by God, right? it's ordained by God for God's vengeance. Right? It's God's authority to exact vengeance and not ours. And I find it interesting too, and um, the theologian Meredith Klein brings this up, but right after this uh, protection by the Lord God over Cain, he builds a city. And so right there and then, we have this sort of the protection of the city, the protection of the state to protect Cain. Things don't go well for that long, though, because, as you know, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So the problem is not completely solved, right? The, the idea is that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and there was probably way more murder, way more war, and God says, that's enough, I'm flooding the earth, right? So we get the story of Noah, who stays on the ark 40 days and 40 nights, comes out from the ark, and God creates a covenant with Noah. And so follow along with me in Genesis chapter 9. This is where I think Paul draws his argument that the civil magistrate has the power of the sword, or the power of enforcing physical judgment. So God makes a covenant with Noah, and starting in verse 5 of chapter 9, he says, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Alright, so there, right there in Genesis 9, is the beginning of God ordaining the civil magistrate to the power of the sword. Right? You may ask, okay, well this doesn't say the civil magistrate, right? We see that throughout scripture... Let's see, move to my next slide. Um, Many Old Testament and New Testament passages support the state's authority to punish man physically, right? We don't see the churches doing this. We don't see um, in the New Testament doing this. So Proverbs 21, 15 says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but a terror to evildoers. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. 
Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Nehemiah 9.37 And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. So there, I think that's the ordaining of the civil magistrate. They rule over our bodies. Notice that, not our souls. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Matthew twenty two twenty one. obviously Jesus says, Render unto Caesars what is Caesars, and to God what is God's. So Jesus doubles down on this Old Testament understanding of the civil magistrate's role and the church's role. And then Jesus never once denounces a government official. And he, uh, at least for having unlawful authority, he does denounce them, but only when they're using that authority unjustly. So we think of the tax collectors or the, I think I spelled, did I spell centurion wrong? That doesn't look right. Centurion and uh, Pontius Pilate, right? So Jesus upholds the Old Testament understanding that the civil magistrate has a role and it's the power of the sword. We see in Romans 13 and our confession talks about. I know that that was a lot, right? We just blew through all of redemptive revelation. Um, Any questions? Time is moving really quick, so trying to get through it all. That's why we're spending maybe multiple weeks on this. Yes, Mary. Yes, so, and thank you, because I did, that's what I did forget, was with the Noahic Covenant. Um, It's not a redemptive covenant, right? It's made with all people. Same thing with Romans 13. talks about all souls, not just Christians, all souls being subject to the governing authorities. So the reason why we have the Noahic Covenant is to restrain evil. So it is what we call a common grace covenant. It's a grace bestowed by God upon, upon all people. Um, so yes, you know, the viewpoint is that before the flood, right, everyone just did whatever they wanted to do. It was pure anarchy. It's kind of the understanding. Whereas he ordains the state, and we see that throughout the Old Testament, and all these cities and these countries kind of come. And obviously there's war, but there's a stabilizing aspect to it. We're obviously... The earth doesn't just, you know, continually murder each other into oblivion. There is some restraining. And so that's why we say the Noah, Noahic covenant is a covenant of common grace, not necessarily of redemptive saving grace. Yes, Mark.
That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. That all men and women have the law of God written on their heart. And that's where I think, and sorry if I didn't mention this, but obviously the first and the second table of the law and the Ten Commandments is still both part of the law. Um, I'm not saying that there's a separation there. Um, so if you remember the confession's teaching on the law of God was that there are more, the moral law, known in the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, and then there's the ceremonial and the judicial laws that Israel um, held to during that theocracy, during God's government over them. And so the, both tables of law in the Ten Commandments are the moral law and should be adhered by everybody. The question is just the civil magistrates specifically in their enforcing of the power of the sword, are they to enforce that first table uh, as well as the second? And we will talk about that more because that is, I mean, it's a huge discussion and a huge issue. Um, and there's plenty of, like when I put up those lists on the board, I, I think all of those current issues and debates and controversies sort of involve some of that first table, second table distinction. Um, so we are out of time. That flew by. Um, so let me just get to the, uh, look at all that, the recap and up next. Um, so we saw the historical background of 1689 Confession, as opposed to Westminster and the Savoy. We've seen the scriptural background to the civil magistrate's authority, and we've seen a little bit of that role, right? The power of the sword to punish evil, and what I would argue to punish that second table of the law. And so what we're going to move to, and this is where some of that really interesting discussion is going to come, is the Christian's involvement in government. Can the Christian be involved in government? Our confession uh, has answers to that. Can the Christian be involved in war? Can the Christian be in the military? Um, and then also the duties and the reasons for subjection to government. And that's when we will get into some of the exceptions. Right? What are the exceptions? When do we not have to obey government? And I think that's when we think about Romans 13, let every person be subject or submission. It's not necessarily obey government at all costs. Right? Again, we talked about how just because you have a father doesn't mean you obey him in everything, right? You obey him when you can, and you have a general heart uh, bent towards submission, and that is your desire. And that is the reason for why Romans 13 and why Paul writes, be subject, but don't obey always, right? So plenty to get to, and I'll probably review a little bit of Romans 13 because there's so much there. Um, but I think it's good. It's good to take our time as we go through this subject because I think there's probably plenty of questions that you guys have in your mind about some of the specifics of this um, that I think are important, and I want to take our time and get through. So let me, let me pray, and we will get to the Lord's service and the worship of our God.